Welcome, everyone, to Upstream on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren. It's good to see, well, not see everyone. Good to chat with you, I guess. I'm looking at a camera. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Unsafe Show. You can go to unsafeshow.com. You can support the show uh, either at unsafeshow.com or you can go to patreon.com slash unsafespace. All of these episodes are made into podcasts, so you can look for Unsafe Space on your favorite podcast app. Uh, I think we have Facebook page now. What else? I think those are most of the ways. Uh, I'll probably repeat this at the end if I forgot any. But today's show, we do a show called Upstream every Tuesday at 4 p.m., where I touch on a few different topics that have been in the news. The three I'm going to try and get to today, if I've got if I've got enough time, is the passing of George Bush, a comment that Michelle Obama made while on her book tour in Brooklyn, and a new Census Bureau, or a recent uh, release of some census data from the 2014 Survey of Income and Program Participation. So welcome, everyone. Uh, let's oh, Let me just tweet out here that I'm live in case anyone wants to jump in and... I will jump right into these topics. So, ah, George W. George H. W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush. I'm hesitant to even talk about this in the way I want to because there's that Latin phrase. I'm I'm going to butcher it because I I never took Latin, but uh, "de mortuis nil nisi bonum," something like that which is basically don't speak anything bad of the dead. Don't speak ill of the dead or speak nothing but good of, of the dead. And I'm not here to speak ill of George Herbert Walker Bush, but something has struck me as really odd, and it got me to thinking about how we treat our presidents, specifically, or even politicians that are, that are powerful, uh, specifically post-mortem. What do we, how do we treat them? And, you know, it's, of course, sad that anyone dies, especially uh, someone who did a lot for his country. And I think George H.W. Bush's heart was probably in the right place most of the time, I think. He certainly um, did have a life of, of dedication to his country in many ways. But the cable news has been, and, and the Twitterverse and everywhere else, it seems like media is kind of nonstop talking about him in a way where they're almost like deifying uh, George Bush. And it's everything from, you know, stories about how he once changed his pants while he was, like, like stupid, stupid stories that news anchors are relaying. Like, I, I remember the time that Barbara said, George, you have the wrong pants. And so he went in inside and changed his pants. And that's the kind of guy he was. I'm like, I, I don't know what that means. But uh, so there's story like stuff like that. And then... Lots of, like, isn't his service dog awesome? We, like, take pictures of his service dog and pictures of the service dog sitting near the casket. Now, of course, we've declared tomorrow, uh, tomorrow being Wednesday, a, a national day of mourning. I guess Trump declared that. And so what does that mean? That means the, the post office, like, most federal employees have the day off. The post office isn't delivering mail. The House of Representatives is, has taken a, a week-long hiatus so that we're going to postpone budget talks, which are obviously very important. Um, 
Justice Roberts closed the Supreme Court for Wednesday. Even the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ will be closed on Wednesday. And, you know, we saw some of this kind of deification when McCain died. Like suddenly people who didn't like him would just, you know, would get very incensed if, if people weren't, uh, you know, very, very, uh, I don't want to say honoring him too much or just like if, if people weren't fawning over over his past, people were, were kind of upset because you know, he's, he's dead. And so therefore, we're supposed to supposed to think he was the best ever. And they, they did this with John McCain. And, and they're I think they're doing it with George H.W. Bush even more. And what really made me want to talk about this, even though I'm sure a bunch of people will be pissed off that I'm I'm not uh, worshiping uh, the ground that George H.W. Bush's casket is is sitting on, but look, I I I don't remember what cable news channel, but one of the hosts said, you know, they were they were talking about the the uh, lying in state and the the services that were coming up, and you know they were showing pictures of the casket and and people putting flowers or, around various uh, places, and the host said, this is what makes America great: how we honor our past presidents. And I thought. Like, what a moronic thing to say. That is has nothing to do with what America makes America great or ever made America great. Every monarchy honors, I mean, unless the, the king was, you know, killed in some sort of revolutionary fashion. Like, every monarchy honors their past kings. I mean, Stalin was, was massively honored, right? That doesn't... How America mourns for a president does not is not what makes America great. And it's uh, it's just such a stupid thing to say. But these kind of stupid things are said all day long, uh, and have been for the past few days since since George Bush's passing. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is because I think it's obviously it's it's good to respect him and look back at his life and say, well, he's you know he did some good things and, and we feel bad for his family and you know there's a passing of a man who frankly uh you know I don't I didn't read a lot about him and I don't know him very well I was I was a, a pretty young young kid when he was in office but seems to be a pretty admirable person on many levels I mean lots of lots of admirable qualities so I don't want to take any of those away from him but he wasn't our king he's not he's not a king this isn't like you know we don't have to you don't have to go into this like massive mourning like a, a god has has passed from the earth. The guy lived a full life. He was 94, I think, and did a bunch of stuff, including being, I think, the, one of the youngest or if not the youngest uh, pilot in the Navy in in World War II. He, uh, and he was the vice president. He had uh, other high-ranking positions in government before that, and then obviously he was the president for uh, one term. But it got me to thinking, like, why do we, has has it always been this way? Why do we, you know, because the founding fathers were really actually concerned about there being basically a king, right? They didn't, they didn't want a king. Now, they were actually weren't concerned so much about the president because they didn't think the president had a lot of power. And they were more concerned about Congress being sort of a, a king-like body or this this uh, aristocracy, which is why they divided Congress into two um, branches, two chambers of Congress. Uh, by the way, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, take notes, feel free. 
So the, the you know the reason they did is they were worried about Congress having too much power. They weren't so much worried about the executive branch, and so they were felt comfortable concentrating all of those powers into one individual. And in fact, Alexander Hamilton originally argued, I think that uh, that person should be the president should be appointed for life. Obviously, that didn't uh, that didn't pass muster. And and frankly, thanks to Tom Woods recently in his debate with Michael Malice, I've learned some things about Alexander Hamilton I didn't realize, and so. Uh, I'm not as big of a fan as him of his as I used to be. So thank you, Tom Woods. But anyhow, you know, why did like what has happened? You know, why are we why are we worshiping these presidents in this way? And and if you look at it, actually, they have become more kings. So maybe it's kind of appropriate that we're we're treating them like this is the death of a king. And I, I did a little research and there's this really great essay by a guy named William P. Marshall, who's the, he was the, or is, I guess, the Kennan Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina. I'll put a link to it below. But he writes this article. I'm going to pull it up. It's uh, 11 Reasons Why Presidential Power Inevitably Expands and Why It Matters. And, and he writes in this, quote, the notion that presidential power has expanded exponentially since the time of, fr- of the framing is, of course, uncontestable. And he he goes on to he lists th- um, three. <laughs> he lists eleven reasons why presidential power has continued to expand, and it's a like I said, it's a great essay. But it it really it really struck me because I think we have started to become this country that. You know, I, I know that everyone, not everyone, I know that half the country seems to hate Trump, and so we're not deifying Trump, but we are, you know, if you if you view Trump as Hitler or the devil and you're very upset about him, you are kind of giving him a lot more power than originally presidents were, were supposed to really have. The president shouldn't be that important. Um, I had a friend who, I think half in jest, but years ago used to suggest, hey, I think we should just pick our presidents randomly out of the phone book. That way no one would uh, really think much of them and they wouldn't want to give presidents much power because everyone would know it's just some person who was who was picked and we wouldn't imbue them with this um, sense of majesty, which we seem to do, uh, either for good or bad. But these, you know, these 11 things, I want to walk through really briefly what... Uh, what William Marshall writes in this essay, and I think this essay is from during George W. Bush's presidency. So this predates uh, Obama and Trump. And I think a lot of the, the points he brings out have gotten even uh, more exaggerated or worse. So why, why have our presidents become like kings? And let's walk through these 11 reasons really quickly, because obviously it, would, it could take probably hours to really, for each one to really dive into it. The first reason he cites is that there is constitutional indeterminacy of the presidency. And what he means there really is the Constitution isn't super clear about what the powers of the president are. And and that causes a problem because it's difficult to then point to them and say, well, this is clearly beyond the scope because the scope isn't as well defined as as it probably should be. So that's the first reason he gives. The second reason he gives is the precedential effects of the executive of executive branch action and what he means by that is and 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 this i think is by the way no different than any other branch of government but 
you can see it here in the presidency. Basically, it means as, as presidents expand their power, let's say, you know, a president does something. Actually, there's, there's an example in history here of uh, President Lincoln who suspended habeas corpus, right? He was the only president ever to suspend habeas corpus. And, but, but from then on, now, once that it's been done, it sets a precedence. And from then on, presidents can look back and say, well, Lincoln did it, therefore I have the power, right? It gives it some kind of legitimacy. So every time a president does something that's ex an expansion of their power, every time they, they take an action, it never gets ratcheted back. It's a one-way ratchet of expansion of power, right? And that's what he means there. And, and you can see that uh, in, in how often people look at, well, can a president do this? And the answer is, well, so-and-so president did this in the past, therefore, um, therefore it's legitimate. Therefore, the president can do it because it's been done, which obviously not is a lot, is, is not a valid, shouldn't be really a valid legal argument, but it's kind of like saying, well, he got away with it, so you got to play fair and let me get away with it. So the, the, that's the second reason that William Marshall lists. The third reason is the role of executive branch lawyering. And he, this is really, he's talking about the DOJ. And he's basically saying, look, you know, presidents have this Department of Justice here, and it's supposed to kind of keep them in check and say, well, you can't do that, and this is the scope of your power. But the president appoints the, the, the head, the attorney general, <laughs> the president appoints the attorney general, and there's kind of pressure within the Department of Justice because they are they do fall under the executive branch. There's kind of pressure for them to interpret what the president can do in a, in a more expansive or a more liberal way. And not I'm not using the term liberal in a political sense. So there's there's kind of pressure within the DOJ to do that because the DOJ is part of the executive branch. So it's kind of like self-policing. The fourth reason he cites is there's the growth of the executive branch. And really what he means there is the number of agencies that have just grown and grown and grown over the years. Um, all of that growth sits underneath the executive. It sits underneath the president. So whenever there's a new agency or a new regulatory body or you pass some regulations somewhere, that's an expansion really of the executive branch and that the bureaucracy that's, that reports to the executive branch. And so that growth alone kind of gives the executive branch more, we'll say, king-like or uh, royal power. The fifth point he brings up is the presidential control of that administrative bureaucracy. So not only is that bureaucracy growing, but over, over time, presidents have, instead of kind of being hands-off with respect to how that administrative uh, state functions, presidents have started to meddle more and more in their affairs and really pull some of that control up to the top, up to their, uh, up to their level. The sixth reason that is stated here is, is presidential access to and control of information. And this is a great point, right? We live in an age, you've heard this over and over again, information is power. Well, the president really has access to more information than anyone else, right? You've got, you know, the NSA and CIA and military and uh, all of these, all of these bureaus and agencies and departments all reporting to the president. They don't report to Congress and they don't, obviously they don't report to the Supreme Court and they don't report directly to people. They, we don't, we don't get to, you know, they don't 
publish everything in the New York Times. So really the president is kind of this filter for all this information. And any information that we get about these things really comes from the president. And that control of information where you can decide what to share and what not to share gives, gives the president extra power. The seventh reason here is uh, the media and the presidency. He cites it that, um, you know, the media, the president has become this, this character that can really, and this, by the way, this is prior to Trump, this guy's writing this. The president has, has become capable of really commanding the media. He can get press conferences whenever he wants. The media will cover anything he says. And the media kind of treats him like a king. They follow him around. They, um, you know, they're, if they like him, they're fawning over him. If they dislike him, they're constantly criticizing him. But regardless, he's always in the news cycle. He's always part of the news. Um, you know, everything from, you know, what his jackets his wife wears to things he says, you know, or dogs he has or whatever it is. He's covered kind of like he's royalty. The eighth reason that uh, uh, William... Oh, I forgot his last name. William uh, Marshall brings up the eighth reason he writes is that uh, the presidency has become in popular culture really this icon of power. And people view the president as representing the nation in a way that has grown in in recent years. And so the the president kind of people view the president as speaking for the country and representing the country in a, in a major way. And so... That kind of gives the president extra power because there's this expectation that uh, he speaks for the country. Uh, the ninth reason is military. By the way, some of these reasons are clearly overlapping. Uh, the ninth reason is military and intelligence capabilities. So obviously the president has power over the military. Um, you see this with George Bush, for example, um, able to order uh, deployments of the military without going through Congress. Uh, and, and all the presidents, I think, in recent history have done that. So you've, he's got control over military intelligence branches, which obviously gives him power. The tenth reason is, is the need for government to act quickly. So, you know, back in the, in the founding days, if a country was going to go to war with us, they'd have to get on boats and make their way over to our shores, and you'd have a lot of lead time. And you could uh, find out via telegraph or whatever. Well, actually... In founding of the country, there was no telegraph. But regardless, uh, you know, it took a long time. You know, for, for people to come over and wage war, it took a long time. And so things were a lot more slowly moving. Nowadays, someone can press a button and send an intercontinental ballistic missile, uh, and it takes seconds. And so the government needs to act quickly, and it's really impossible for Congress to act that quickly. So, we, you know, we tend to imbue the president with more power so that he can make quick decisions in times of, quote, emergencies and that kind of thing. And, of course, emergency powers are, are generally not rolled back. And so the final reason uh, William Marshall gives is the increasingly uh, polarized two-party system. And what he means by this is we, you know, when a Democrat is in power, the, the, because it, it's, we've really become this two-party system, when a Democrat is in power, we end up, a lot of times, the Democrats end up wanting to give him or her as much power as possible because it's it's their person. And the, the reverse happens when the Republicans are in power. And so both both are ratcheting up uh, both are ratcheting up the the power of the executive branch. And of course, this is 
doubly important if one party is in control of both Congress and the presidency, because there's this kind of two-party mentality, then you end up with that party really kind of all being on the same page about getting their agenda accomplished, and they don't really care if the president is their person. So if he can do it, great, and they'll support it, and there won't be um, any pushback. So I thought that was fascinating. Uh, it was really interesting read, and it explains a little bit why or how maybe we've started to treat presidents like like their royalty, like their kings. We've imbued them with all of this power, and and so when they die, we kind of it's just like deification, it's like the death of a king, right? And we we have to be we have to close the stock market, and it's it's a big deal. And again, I you know there are many things that were admirable about admirable about George Herbert Walker Bush, um, but not everything was admirable about him. And he he wasn't a king, and he wasn't perfect, right? When I when I think of George Bush, the original George Bush, uh, the two things that come to mind for me are his read my lips, no new taxes thing. I remember being in, I think it was high school, there was, uh, I remember someone had in their locker a picture of George Bush and someone had taken it while he was speaking and he was kind of like making a gesture with his hand and it looked kind of like a middle finger, right? right? And they had captioned the picture, uh, read my lips, no new taxes, right? Everyone was very upset because he had lied about not having new taxes and introduced new taxes. That was a big deal. And obviously the other thing he's, I think, known for a lot was Desert Storm. I'm not sure you can say that was was a good thing. I'm not a big fan of of mucking around in the Middle East, and I, I get that. You know, we need to. We felt we needed to liberate Kuwait, and there's and and Iraq was was doing some horrible things. But you know, mucking around in the Middle East has has not really led to peace and harmony uh, worldwide, and certainly is a contributing factor to things like 9/11. Uh, Bush also was uh, you know approved bailouts of. Of, of banks, and if you remember the savings and loan scandals and, and the failure of, uh, I think, Drexel, Burnham, and Lambert, and, and then the subsequent uh, bailouts of, of savings and loans. There was, uh, Bush supported a semi-automatic rifle ban. Uh, so, you know, he, you know he, he was certainly into the drug law, so if you're kind of libertarian and, and, you, um, and you think that the, the war on drugs is really a, a war on people, and and it's bad for this country well you know george hw bush and and uh and obviously reagan before him very very into the drug law uh, the anti-drug laws and he spent i think three billion dollars uh to expand anti-drug programs and that kind of stuff so like many politicians he was a mixed bag Probably a great guy. I don't know. Maybe he was a, a great guy. Seems like an admirable guy in many ways. I'm not saying we shouldn't, uh, you know, have a moment of silence and, and mourn the loss of a president. I, I think that's appropriate. But I really think we need to start checking ourselves. These people aren't kings. Uh, they, they're not gods. They aren't perfect. And it's, you know, it's completely legitimate to say, the guy did some things that were okay. He did some things that weren't okay. You know, let's have a moment of silence for him and honor what he did well, but let's not go over the top. This 
24-7 coverage for several days about George Bush and his dogs and his wheelchair and his, uh, you know, the time that he changed his pants is, is a, it's a little bit much. Uh, I think we would behoove ourselves to not treat our presidents like kings and maybe even roll back some of that executive power we seem to be so intent on giving them. So that's the first topic I wanted to talk about. The next topic, excuse me, the next topic is is Michelle Obama. And I think I might surprise some people by saying I'm going to agree with something Michelle Obama said. But first, let's talk about Michelle. She wrote a book. Uh, the book is called Becoming. Now, when I heard, honestly, when I heard the book, I was like, this sound, that sounds like a horror movie. And, and then I realized, I looked on IMDb, it actually was, there was a movie called The Becoming uh, it only has two and a half, no, 2.9 stars out of 10 on IMDb. Angels fall from the heavens, then they turn into vampires. Sounds like a thriller. So anyway, she wrote a book called Becoming, uh, although I imagine there aren't any vampires in it other than, uh, other than vampires known as politicians. But she was on a book tour promoting her book. And, of course, the media loves Michelle Obama, so everyone's covering it, and they're very excited about this. And she was in Brooklyn, and she said this, quote, that whole so you can have it all. Oh, by the way, let me give context. She's talking about women, and she's talking about uh, messages that people give women. And she's going she's gonna to be mentioning the Sheryl Sandberg lean-in idea, which I'll talk about in a minute. So... Anyway, she says, quote, that whole so you can have it all. Nope, not at the same time. That's a lie. And it's not always enough to lean in because that shit doesn't work all the time. So, of course, the media is very excited that Michelle Obama swore. Um, whoop de doo And everyone's focusing on this, I don't know, is it criticism or commentary on this lean-in concept popularized by Sheryl Sandberg? So Sheryl Sandberg is the Facebook COO. She wrote a book and I think now has a website about this concept of women leaning in, which is, uh, you know, her, her big, you know, she believes in things like the, the wage gap and, and stuff that's just not true. But she does, um, you know, she does cite real problems that, that working women have in the workplace, especially if they're trying to balance their life uh, with being a mom. And so... She she talks about leaning in, and everyone's saying, "Oh, is is Michelle criticizing Sheryl Sandberg's lean in?" I don't really care about about that. I I think people are ignoring the first part of the sentence, and it's something that I'm glad Michelle Obama is saying, and I wish that she would expand on this. I'm gonna read that first part again. She says that whole so you can have it all. Nope, not at the same time. That's a lie. And what she's talking about here is. We have been telling, I have a daughter, and we've been, we, we tell girls, and you see this all the time, we tell uh, girls and young women that, and, and grown women, that you can have it all. And what they mean by that is you can be super successful in your career and a great mom to your kids all at the same time, right? And this is kind of this feel-good thing to say. It's this uh, you know, you, you never go bankrupt appealing to women's vanity, right? So this is this feel-good thing to say of like, you can do everything. You go, girl, right? You can you can do everything. 
Um, and so it feels good. Uh, and if you don't think about it much, you, you think, oh, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm telling young girls and women that they can, they can have it all. But the truth is, um, it's, that's not true. That's a lie. It's disconnected from reality. Uh, and so, therefore, it's dangerous. Anything disconnected from reality, reality like that is dangerous. Uh, no one can have it all. And we need to step back and really kind of analyze what's, what's going on here. And, and there's a nuance that I want to explain to this. So children need parental involvement, right? This is, uh, this is very important to their development. Things like, um, uh, you know, shipping your kid off to daycare. First of all, if you're going to have a kid, I don't understand why you're going to pay someone, uh, you know, ship it off to someone who gets paid minimum wage to watch 20 kids at a time. Uh, you're going to ship your kid off to have someone else, you know, some minimum wage employee raise, raise your child along with 19 other children. I, I don't, why have a child? Just don't have a child if that's the kind of parent you're going to be. Children need parental involvement for bonding. Uh, and in fact, there have been uh, studies that suggest that uh, there's uh, abandonment issues. If you're in daycare for more than 10 hours a, a week, there are uh, behavioral issues later in, in life, aggression and that kind of thing as you, as you grow up. Daycare, you know, it's, there are some studies that say, well, you know, your vocabulary is better if you're in daycare as opposed to maybe being at home with a mom who doesn't talk to you. I, I don't know. And I think there's some controversy there, but there's certainly controversy, but there's certainly a, a hesitancy to say to parents, hey, you know what? Daycare sucks, right? Daycare sucks. It's not good. Um, and children really do better if you're a stay, if you've got a stay at home parent. Now it doesn't have to be the mom, right? The dad can stay at home. So I'm not saying the woman has to be the one to stay at home with the kids, but someone should. Um, preferably someone who is, is the parent or is the primary caregiver that can, can give them one-on-one -on -one attention and, and really help nurture and raise them. Now for young children, it should be the mom because breastfeeding is important. Um, I think, I think there've been studies suggesting that lack of breastfeeding can, can decrease IQ by, uh, you know, not a lot point, point, point or two, right. But Still, breastfeeding is important. It's also important for uh, just biologically for, for health. You get, uh, um, you get a lot of uh, good nutritional and, and long-term health benefits from, from breastfeeding. So breastfeeding is important. But other than breastfeeding, it, I, I don't know that it matters too much which parent stays home. But it's important to stay home. And... You know, I'd be happy to stay home as a as a dad, right? My my wife wants to go out and work. I'd be happy to stay home. I I love kids, so I don't. I'm not saying that it's got to be the mom, but I am saying that it's better to have, for have someone stay home with a kid. And this is the same. You know, that this idea that you can not do that. You can both go to work, and and both feel good about raising your children is is a fallacy. You should not feel good about raising your children if you're both going to work. You're not doing the best job that you can. You're sending them off to daycare to have someone else raise them. And this is, and, and it means, by the way, you can't be, if your goal, let's say that you're in kind of a traditional situation and, 
and your husband's going to go to work and you've kind of agreed that he's going to go to work and you're choosing between staying at home and also going to work full time. Now, again, like I said, I don't know how many times I have to say this, could be the other way around. I'm not saying it has to be the woman that stays home. But if you're a woman and your husband's going to work and you've both decided that he's going to be a breadwinner and you're deciding whether you need to be a second breadwinner or stay home and someone comes to you and they says, well, you can be a super mom and an excellent CEO. Like you can be the best of both. You can just do both. Uh, they're lying to you. That's not true. You can't do both well. If you choose to go to work, you can do work well, but you won't be a great mom at that point. Or you won't be that great parent that's that's there for the kids. And if you're a great parent, then obviously you'll have to compromise work. It could be that you could do a little bit of work without, depending on how old the child is, but you got to compromise something. And this is just basic math. There's only so many hours in a day. There's only so much energy you have to devote. This isn't really any different than an advice that, you know, I, I give to startups or anyone gives to startups, right? It's not just, I didn't invent this advice, right? But, you know, I've been in Silicon Valley for almost 20 years involved in startups and, and doing uh, angel investing and advising for, you know, over a decade. Everyone says the same thing to startups. Do one thing and do it well, right? You don't spread your resources because you have finite resources and you really need to be focused. You need to focus on doing one thing well. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're doing multiple things, you're not doing either one as much as well as you would be if you were doing just that thing. That's just a fact, right? That's just a fact. And so this idea that we tell women, well, you you can... Without, without the father staying home, you can go off and have this spectacular career and be the best at your career and you'll also be a, a, the best mom is just a lie. It's just a lie. And it sets women up for failure. And if you have children and you want to go have a career, you need to have a conversation with your partner about who is going to take care of the children, especially when they're young. Someone needs to be home taking care of the children uh, providing that parental bond, helping them develop and avoid behavioral problems, throwing them in daycare does not make you super mom. And I think it's a it's a horrible, horrible message to be telling women. And circling back to what Michelle Obama said, with the context I just had in mind, she says that whole so you can have it all, nope, not at the same time, that's a lie. That is gold. That sentence of Michelle Obama's is gold. And that's what people should be focusing on. She is 100% right about that. And she talks about, you know, when she first um, got into the White House, her focus was on getting her family taken care of, making sure the girls were, you know, uh, transitioning into their new school life and um, and really making making sure that the parental needs of her children were, be taken, were being taken care of because her husband was busy on Drone Tuesdays bombing people in the Middle East. But that's a separate issue. Uh, but look, she was focused on the... It sounds like she was focused on the right thing. I, I don't know everything. I haven't read her book. I don't know everything that she's saying. And, and she and I probably disagree about many, many things. But that is a great point. And I'm really glad that she said it. And I wish she would say it more and that more people would, would cover cover her when she says that and focus on that argument she's making because she's spot on. So chalk one up for Michelle Obama. Never thought I would say that, but uh, 
here we are. I'm saying it. All right. Last thing I want to cover here. There was a... Let's see. The Census Bureau released the 2014 Survey of Income and Program Participation. There's an article about this. Let me pull up this article so I can just be referencing it while I'm talking. All right. So... This is some data about the usage of welfare among uh, immigrants and non-citizens. Now, it doesn't look like they differentiate between legal and illegal non-citizens here. But the reason I want to bring this up is just yesterday I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about immigration. And, of course... And we were talking about how if you if you express concern over any kind of immigration, you're you're viewed as as xenophobic, right? And I think we really need to break this down because it's not about xenophobia. And actually, maybe anti-immigration isn't the right way to look at this either. Um, it's just a band-aid to a problem that, you know, the band-aid actually maybe won't help. So, look, there are people who who are pro lots of immigration, legal or illegal, because they have this mindset, or at least claim to have this mindset of they want to help everybody in the world. Oh, they should be helped, right? Um, can't we help them? We're a rich country. We, sh- we should help them. Uh, first of all, the use of the, the word we is is really bothersome to me. Uh, there is no we. We're not, my money isn't your money. Um, you know, you don't just get to reach your hand in, into my wallet because you think, quote, we should help people. You want to help people, go ahead. By all means, uh, throw some charity to whomever you want. I'll do the same. But this whole idea that, like, we is a th- like we should decide how to do nice things yeah, that's not what the government's for, right? The government uh, really is supposed to um, protect us, protect our individual rights, protect us from foreign invasion, protect us from uh, people who violate our rights internally. It's, it's not a, it's not a collective charity. We don't choose to donate to to this kind of stuff. But anyway, so they use this idea that like, we should help everybody now. It's, it's this form of fake generosity, right? Because they're not doing anything. It's like, go ahead. No one's stopping you from helping anyone. You, you're just, it's easy to say we should do it if you don't have to write any checks yourself. Or at least your portion is very small or you don't see it or the government's just going to print money and so it's going to, you know, it'll affect a generation or two later. You know, it's easy to, to virtue signal and act like you're so caring because we should help everyone. So that's just fake. And... And a bunch of bull crap. But, um, you know, the other argument, because by the way, infinite there resources aren't infinite, right? We don't have an infinite amount of money. So, uh, you know, if you're going to, this we help everybody thing, that, where does it end? I mean, there's, what, 7 billion people on the planet? We, we don't have the resources without, you know, obviously drastically affecting our own uh, standard of living. I mean, we can't just... This isn't one giant, the world's not one giant commune. So, um, 
So that's obviously a specious argument. But, you know, the other argument here is if you do want to help people, um, you know, actually letting them come in to help them is actually a horrible way, right? There's been studies. So, for example, when, um, when there was the Syrian refugee crisis in, in Europe, here, let me pull up this article. It's in the, in the independent here. And as it turns out, the Syrian refugees, they, the, the, so if you're just looking at the, the refugees from, um, in Jordan, right? So the refugees in German, Jordan, and they were coming to Germany, right? Um, and according to this, a budget of $3,000 per refugee in Jordan, if they stay there, would provide them food, water, education, and opportunity. So it costs you 3K roughly per refugee to help them where they are, right? You want to bring them into Germany? Well, it costs you 10 times that. It costs you 30K. So that means you could help 10 times as many people by not letting them in the country and helping them in where they are if you really are bent on spending money to help people, right? I know this, this is specific to German and, and Germany in that situation, but... Uh, the same principle applies. Typically, it's cheaper to help people where they are if if you really want to do that. So even if you want to do charity, which you should do with your own money, not someone else's, it's cheaper to do charity by helping them where they are. And then really, I get that it's a hard problem. It's easy to say we should let them in. It's a much harder problem to figure out like, gee, why, why are things going poorly where they're from? And how can we actually help them? And, you know, the answer is usually capitalism. But no one wants to say that, right? So even if you're, you're wanting to help them, you've got this, uh, it's the worst way to do it, basically, or one of the worst ways to do it. You can help them a lot cheaper by letting them stay where they are and trying to help them in place. So, so there's, that, there's that argument. But really, you know, my, my friend, again, this stems from this conversation we we're having, and, and really there's this idea that, like, you know, we looked around at people that we know who are immigrants. My wife is an immigrant, right? We looked around people who, who we know who are immigrants, and we said, well, gee, a lot of the people that we know, um, they are starting businesses, and they're very successful, or at least working towards success, and that, you know, they're they're smart, and they're hardworking, and they are definitely contributing, right? They're not a net drain, and, and really, people are a resource, Right. And so we were kind of having this conversation, like, why are people viewed, you know, on the one hand, you know, it seems kind of xenophobic, right, to view people as this burden, because on the other hand, we're looking at people and they seem to be this, re people are this resource, right? The great things have happened because immigrants have come into this country and had the freedom to found companies or build exciting things. And so people are also this resource. And the truth is that people are both. Some people are a resource. Some people aren't. Some people are, are burdensome. And you know this just in your life. I mean, you look around you, right? Some people are in your lives uh, are net gains, net positives, right? They, they contribute. They're productive. Some people are moochers. Okay. So this brings us to the question of, well, you know, a hundred years ago, we didn't have this welfare state. And so, 
And now we do, and the incentives have really changed. And this was kind of a hypothesis we had. Well, it seems like the incentive have changed. Because we always hear like, well, immigrants don't use a lot of welfare or whatever. And, you know. But we thought, we thought about these incentives. And, you know, 100 years ago, you come in, let's say, the early 20th century. You come into America. Well, there is no safety net. So, and you know that before you get on the ship, right? And, of course, 100 years ago, you're, get, you're not just taking a plane or walking across the border. Often you're taking a ship. I guess some people could walk across the border. But, you know, 100 years ago, you're coming to America knowing there's no safety net. So you're uprooting your lives uh, and the life of your family, and you're, you're bringing them over to this place where there's no safety net, but you got some freedom and maybe some opportunity more than you do where you are now. And that self-selects, that, that attracts a certain kind of person. And I think roughly a third of the immigrants that came at that time ended up leaving because it turns out they needed the safety net or they couldn't hack it or whatever it was. They didn't like it, right? And so when you don't have a massive welfare state, you tend to get pretty good immigrants. You get people who are coming in who really are contributing, right? Because they, they don't have, there's no safety net. They contribute or, or they don't survive, right? So it's self-selecting. But what's changed? Well, certainly one thing that has changed is the massive welfare state. And now there are some numbers about how, I, there have been numbers before, but these are the most recent numbers about, most recent I've seen about how non-citizens consume, uh, consume welfare and welfare-like programs. And I'm going to go through the numbers, but important thing to keep in mind here is this is a shifting incentive. Once you have goodies that people can come for and there is this massive safety net if that safety net is is better than their current conditions or wherever they are suddenly people are coming for the safety net not because they value freedom and want to be productive and you can't blame them of course if you know you have a horrible life where you are and there's a safety net across the border you it's better for your kids like of course you do right i'm not blaming the immigrants for wanting to do this, but we've shifted our incentives. And because we've shifted our incentives, this is why uh, a lot of people are calling for border walls and they're worried about uh, immigration. And I know a lot of people on the left just dismiss this as, you know, immigrants aren't a burden. So let's walk through some numbers. So in fact, I think I even have, I have a couple figures. Let me just put up a figure here. Uh, all right, this is figure one. So the summary of this article here, or this, uh, um, this survey, the summary is roughly 63% of, quote, non-citizens are on some form of welfare, right? As opposed to 35% of natives. Citizen, natives as citizens. And so if you look at this graph, you can see you can see that any welfare right at the beginning here, 63% non-citizen households. Again, I don't I don't think they're distinguishing between citizen uh, between legal immigration and illegal immigration. So non-citizen households, and then they have all immigrant households, naturalized citizen households, and native households. I'm gonna skip over the the middle two because they're actually in the middle mostly. Uh, for these. So you've got non-citizen households, any welfare, 63%, native households, 35%. If you just look at cash, 
31% non-citizen households, 19% of native households. Food, 45% of non-citizen households, 21% of native, native households. Medicaid, 50% of non-citizen households, 23% of native households. And then housing. Housing is the only one actually where native households use more of it. Non-citizen households, 4%, native, 5 But everything else, and of course overall, is massively skewed towards, uh, if, if you're a non-citizen household, you're, you use a lot more welfare resources than people in, that, than, than the native households do. So that's interesting. And now one thing that people bring up is what well, they kind of assume this can't happen because they say, well, illegal illegal immigrants can't uh, can't collect a lot of welfare. Now that's not necessarily true. Some states do allow it, but what happens often is their children are born here and they they can collect on behalf of their children because their children become citizens. Um, and the other interesting thing to note here is that the 63% of non-citizens that are using welfare, it actually grows to 70% for those who have been here for 10 years or more. So it's it's not that they use welfare and then get off of it. It's that uh, they actually probably learn how to work the system more or whatever. Maybe they have more access as they, they're here longer. And so they actually they use it more. Now, I don't know what it looks like you know, generations later, but 10 years later, uh, they they use more. So these are just... You know, this is an empirical reason why someone might say, "Gee, uh, this doesn't look like this doesn't look good, right? This doesn't look like a good way." Now, maybe there are a few very lucrative immigrants who uh, more than make up for this with their productivity. I don't know, but uh, certainly this should concern you. So let's look at, at uh, Figure Two. Figure two here, now these, there's a Washington Examiner article here I can link to in the show notes, but that has these figures. So figure two, this is uh, the share of immigrant households using at least one welfare program is higher than natives in every top immigrant receiving state. So these are the top immigrant receiving states, California, New York, Texas, and Florida. So where most immigrants go. In all of these states, the non-citizen uh, households use more than native households. For California, it's 72% of non-citizen households uh, use at least one welfare program, only 35% of native. Uh, so that's twice as many, over twice as many. In New York, it's not quite bad. It's 53% of non-citizen households and 38% of native. Still a big gap. In Texas, it's almost twice as many. Again, 69% of non-citizen households and 35% of, of native households. And in Florida, it's a little more similar to New York. It's 56% of non-citizen households and 35% of native households. So again, there is a disparity here. There's a disparity between how native households use welfare and welfare-like programs and how immigrant households use these programs. And so if... If there are people saying, hey, I'm kind of concerned about immigration, I think you should be asking why. And of course, if they're worried about it and, you know, if they want to screen in terms of race, race or ethnicity, okay, then you can, then you can call them uh, xenophobic or, or something like that. But uh, really, I think what it comes down to for a lot of people is they really... They don't. They want more producers. I think we'd all love to have more people who produce 
and our net gains coming into the U.S. Of course, right? Um, but we don't want more moochers, right? And there are definitely moochers. There's a lot of moochers in the U.S. already. A lot of native household moochers, too. And it's not just immigrants. We don't want more moochers. We don't want to make that problem worse. We want fewer moochers and more producers. Now, it's not, it's not really easy to screen for that. It's very difficult, right? You can't sit down with someone and kind of you know, determine whether you think they will be do, you know, use too much welfare or be or, or invent an iPhone or whatever it is. It's, it's hard to it's hard to make that determination. And you certainly, that's not something you can do. But what you can do is ask yourself, what kind of incentives do we want for people to come to this country? Because you can let people self-select. And the best way to have people self-select is just to not have the safety nets. If you had no no big welfare state, and by the way, I'm not for corporate welfare either, so I'm absolutely get, get rid of that too. But if you dismantle the welfare state and you get rid of all these programs, and maybe you let states kind of do it and they can, you know, if states had more autonomy and independence as was originally envisioned, maybe, you know, once some states can fail and some states can succeed and that's fine. But, you know, if you dismantle this welfare state, you end up, changing the mindset of the people that are coming in. I don't know if you'll change the race or ethnicity. That doesn't matter, right? What matters is you'll change the mindset of people that are coming in. The people that are just looking for handouts aren't going to bother making the trek to the U.S. and trying to get in. The people that really um, are are kind of rugged individualists and really just want that freedom and they want to they be able to go make it on their own, you know, swim or sink or swim, those are the kind of people you will end up getting. And to me, that's, you know, that's really what it makes, what, you know, that's one of the things that make America, makes America great in the first place. It's the, that freedom mindset, the individualist mindset. It's the mindset that I'll be in charge of my own life. Just leave me alone, right? Give me the freedom to build my own destiny. And you want more of those people, no matter what ethnicity or their what ethnicity or race or origin or what doesn't matter you want more people with that mindset because those people are a net positive for all of us but you don't want more people coming in who only want to uh you know bleed you dry you don't want more vampires coming in and there are plenty of vampires now and again i'm not just talking about immigrants there's plenty of native born vampires who are just mooching off the system. And so that's what the immigration issue is about, I think, for a lot of people. The other thing which I didn't touch on but I've talked about in the past is, you know, you do have this issue where a lot of people are coming in and they're voting for more socialism, right? Because maybe they come from a socialist place and they vote for more socialism. So if you want small government, you know, that's a problem. But I don't know that we can tease that out necessarily from... uh, whether they're coming in to be moochers or producers, right? Because if we ha- only had producer mindset people, maybe they wouldn't be voting for more socialism, right? Um, maybe that's because we have these safety nets, so we're attracting people who like this idea of uh, of socialism, of this kind of world communism, right? This kind of giant commune where uh, government takes care of everyone and, and uh, they can loot your stuff. So... That's that's it. Those are the three things I wanted to talk about today. Thanks for watching and uh, and or listening. As always, 
you can uh, see us. I'll be on Deprogrammed with Kerry Smith here on Unsafe Space uh, this Thursday at 11 a.m. I don't remember what we're talking about this Thursday, but this Thursday at 11 Pacific, Kerry and I do a show called Deprogrammed where we talk about basically social justice culture and its origins and impact on current events. So you can see us this Thursday at 11. That'll be a live show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Unsafe Show. You can go to unsafeshow.com to support the show. You can follow, we have a Facebook page, Unsafe Space. Just look for it. You can go to patreon.com slash unsafe space. And of course, if you're here on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. It means a lot to us. And, and subscribe to the podcast if you, if you like listening to podcasts. Just look us up, Unsafe Space. So thank you uh, again, everyone. Really appreciate uh, appreciate talking to everyone here. And as always, you get, if you have things you want uh, Carrie and I to talk about or you want me to talk about or people you want us to interview, just uh, hit us up either on Twitter or YouTube or at, at unsafeshow.com and, and we'll try and do that. So thanks again. Take care.